All right, as you grab a seat, would you grab your Bible? And as you grab your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. That's the first book in the New Testament, second chapter. That's where we're going to be tonight as we work through and really finish off. Really finish off a, a, a series of teachings around the Christmas story. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. Before we get to Matthew chapter 2 tonight, we have some business I want to take care of. And here's the business. Calvary Community Church um, has decided, our leadership has really asked us as a church um, to lean into an initiative that's going to be happening in 2023. And here's the initiative. The initiative is called our 168 Hours of Prayer Initiative. And, and here's what it is. Some of you know about it. Some of you already signed up for it, in fact. Here's what it is. There's, in every single week, there's 168 hours. And the goal of this prayer initiative is that in 2023, that every single hour of every single day of every single week of the entire year, there would be someone who's a part of the Calvary family praying that God would do more than all we could ask or imagine in and through our church and in our world. So that's what the initiative is all about, to get at least 168 hours, at least 168, all 168 hours covered, um, that we would have that and people would lean in. And as of right now, almost 500 people are signed up to pray for one hour a week for all of 2023. Uh, so I'm signed up. I have 10 p.m. on Monday. So my plan, every Monday, 52 Mondays, for all of 2023, is to pray from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. on Monday nights, 168 hours a week. We are currently covered for 165 hours out of 168. And here is my intention. I want you to know it right from the start. I would like to text the executive leadership team of Calvary tonight and tell them that Young Adults Ministry finished the job. That's the goal here tonight. So... Here's how this works. I'm going to name some times that we have open. We have, if you did the math, three. Three times open. If I name a time that you're just like, that will never work for me, and you cannot do that time, we have cards in the very back on the prayer wall that will be ready for you to go. You can sign up for any time you want, any time between now and the end of the year. But if I name one of these three times and you go, you know what? I could do that. I would be happy to do that. Then I would love for you in this moment to come forward and claim this card. Like, we're going to try to finish the job right here, right now, before the sermon even starts. That's the goal tonight. Now, I need you to know, two of these times are like uniquely YA times, all right? Like, there are people in this world who would never be awake at this hour, but you people are. And then there's one time that's a little tricky, but I'll try to sell you on it anyway. So here's the first one. And again, if this is you... All you got to do is just walk up and claim it. You don't have to say anything, do anything. You walk up, you claim the card, you fill out your name and your email address. We're going to email you prayer prompts and videos and, and tips on prayer every single week. But here's what you do. Just walk up and claim it. You fill this out, dump it on the prayer wall. We'll submit it for you. So here's the three hours. The first, Sunday, 3 a.m., to 4 a.m. Now, here's why this is appealing. Because some of you start your Saturday nights at like 11 and you're just hanging out and raging and having the best time. And so 3 a.m. is just like when you get home, why not just spend some time in prayer right when you get home? Is anyone in on this? Is anyone like, yes, that's me? Yes, sir! Yes, 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 yes! Amazing. We are covered on Sundays. Two left. You ready for this? This is for the person here. Listen, some of you, um, 
Some of you are maybe in college, and you could do this even if you don't live in the area. You can do this anywhere in the world. Prayer works anywhere. Um, and some of you are in college, and when I was my, a senior in college, I had the best schedule ever. I managed to pull off a Tuesday, Thursday only schedule. So I had a permanent four-day weekend. I had Wednesdays off. Tuesday and Thursday, I had class. That is a perfect one for this person here. I've got Mondays at 1 a.m. So you roll out. Yes! 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 Beautiful. All right. All right, this next one's tricky, but I want you to hear me out, okay? I want you to hear me out because at first you're going to go like, oh, that's the worst time of the week. And let me tell you why it's not. All right. Friday, 5 p.m. Kind of rough, right? You're like, I don't want my Fridays. But here's what I know about some of you people. Some of you people are, oh, we got someone already. I don't even have to sell you. Yes. Yes. Amazing. My friends, Young Adults Ministry, finish the job. Woo! Outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. I'm tempted to just say amen and we can all go home. But uh, unfortunately, the word of God wants to have its word. So Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be tonight. Um, I didn't think this part through. Um, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Um, and now we're about to turn to the literal worst story of the Christmas story. Uh, yeah, I know. It was like, whoo, and then, whoo. Like, that's what's, so, like, literally tonight, and if, if you don't know the Bible super well, you might think the Christmas story is all just like, silent night, and like, it's all happy and wonderful and joyful, and it's almost all that. But then there's like this one story in the Christmas story that we do our best to just kind of ignore. We're just like, if we just kind of push that off to the side, it's all cheery and bright and merry and joy to the world. But then there's like this one story we're going to look at tonight that is absolutely atrocious. Like this one story tonight that, that I'm going to define in this way. Like this is a story tonight where joy and sorrow are mingled together. But like tonight what we're going to look at is the story of joy and sorrow mingled. Tonight we're going to look at the hardest story, in my estimation, maybe one of the hardest stories in the scriptures. And you might ask, like, why do that? This is the most wonderful time of the year. Why talk about the most horrible story in the Bible? And, and, and here's the answer to that question. And this is true not only of this story we're about to read tonight, but it's true of every single thing in your life. That you cannot grow without tension. You cannot grow without tension. Like you think of like a literal child who's growing, and you know that kids grow through, we call it growing pains, right? Like as their body is growing, it creates friction and tension, and they're in pain. But you want that to happen, right? Because you don't want kids to stay little forever, you want them to grow. The same is true as if you've ever trained your body to get faster or to get stronger. You actually have to put your body under stress and tension, and that's how you grow. And I want you to know the same is true for your spiritual walk. Like I want you to understand that if you want to grow spiritually, you have to sit under hard things, under tension. If all you ever do in your walk with Jesus is look at the light and easy and lovely parts of the Bible, you might enjoy it, but you will not grow. And so tonight, we're going to look at a story that um, I would say if the Bible was a movie, there's parts I wouldn't watch, like ever. And this is one of those parts. And if you don't know the scriptures at all, you might not even know what I'm talking about, but I want you to buckle up for this story because it's not pleasant, but it is in the scriptures. And it is worth us looking at if we want to grow this Christmas. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. It said, when they saw the star, 
This is the Magi, these, these wise men, these individuals who are following the star and going after Jesus. You, you've heard the song. It says, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child, that's Jesus, with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the story tonight again begins with joy. Like these wise men, these magi, are are traveling from a far distance, and they see this star, they see it's pointing down at this house, and they come and they see Jesus. Now, now it's likely this didn't happen the night Jesus was born. Sometimes you see like the the nativity scene, and it's like the shepherds and the magi all together. That's like separate things. In fact, this could have happened as much as a year and a half or two years later after Jesus was born. But Jesus is born, they're overjoyed, they give him gifts, And it says that they are filled with joy. They worshiped him. They're overjoyed. It's like bubbling out from over them. That happens in verse 10, 11, 12. And then here's what it says. It says, having having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and to kill him. So so Herod is the one who has declared himself the king of the Jews, the king of Judea. He's in charge. He is the boss. He's the one who gets to decide who lives, who dies, what happens in this story. And Herod's looking to kill him. The magi are warned in a dream not to go back to him. And then here's what it says in verse 14. So he, and that's Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. That's where he stayed until the death of Herod. So it was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then verse 16, one of the hardest verses in the Bible right here. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And, and again, maybe you've read the scriptures and it's just easy to blow past this, but um, this is one of the most horrible stories in the Bible. What, what you've got is this madman king who calls himself the king of Judea, the king of the Jews. He hears that this child is born who is going to be king of the Jews, and his response and his reaction is one of horror. And now, you need to get your head around how big Bethlehem was at the time. It wasn't a big city. It, it was, probably wasn't even called a city. In fact, Bethlehem is somewhere you never would have heard of if Jesus wasn't born. But Jesus is born there, and, and the best estimates are this, that the number of boys who were under the age of two, who were slaughtered on that night, was probably 12 to 15 boys. This wasn't 2,000. This wasn't two. It was 12 to 15 boys. 12 to 15 boys taken out of their home, ripped out of their mother's hands, and driven through with a Roman sword. I have a two-year-old son, and I cannot get my mind around the anguish that would cause me to have the authorities of the state walk into my home for no reason, nothing explained to me. I don't know anything about Jesus or anything about him. And they rip my boy out of my hand, and they drive a sword through his heart until he's dead. This is the scriptures we're looking at tonight. And, and as horrific as this is, well, one of the things I want to tell you tonight as a student of the scriptures is that this story is actually one of the reasons I believe the Bible to be true and not a fairy tale. But because, listen, um, the Bible doesn't celebrate what just happened. 
It doesn't say this is good. In fact, it's going to tell us how awful it is. But one of the things I love about the scriptures is the scriptures describe life as it is, not as we wish it would be. And sometimes what we want is for a Bible to just describe a fairy tale world where everything's perfect. And that's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes the world as it actually is gritty and messy and sinful and wicked and filled with heartache. And if you've ever felt like your life is gritty and messy and sinful and filled with heartache, you will resonate with the scriptures. Again, the Bible doesn't describe some world we don't live in. It describes the real world we do live in. And this horrible, wicked act of this horrible, wicked, insecure man is put right in our face. 12 to 15, two-year-old and under corpses, laying dead in a town called Bethlehem. That's what's described for us. Verse 17 says this. It says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so you've got the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born, hundreds of years before this horrific massacre in Bethlehem, who's prophesying, and albeit a very kind of complicated and poetic kind of way, but he's prophesying that there's going to be something that happens that causes mothers to weep, and they won't be able to be comforted. There's something that's going to happen that's so dreadful, so awful, so heart-wrenching that they'll never recover from it. (coughs) See how it says, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. You know, one of the things we learn really quickly in pastoral ministry is that there are a lot of pains people go through in life, but there is no pain greater than a parent who loses a child. And some of you have walked through that in your own family, your own life. It doesn't matter how old the parent is. They can be 25 or 85. But when you lose your child, it is almost impossible to even come up with words to describe how painful that is. And that's what we see here. And here's what I want to point out. In verse 10, we have the Magi, and they meet Jesus. And what does it say? They are overjoyed. Overjoyed. And then eight verses later, you've got women weeping to the point where they will never be comforted, for their children are no more. When I say tonight, I want to preach on a story of joy and sorrow mingled together. This is what I want to teach about. This is what I want you to see. If someone could grab me a water, that would be like, 10 out of 10, awesome. Um, But that's what we're going to look at tonight. I want to give you, if you're taking notes tonight, five reminders for this Christmas. We're just like a couple of days away from Christmas, and I think um, it's really easy to get caught up in the churn of everything that's about to happen. Uh, You're about to have, like, Grandma come into town, or you're going to Grandma's house. You're about to go to church services or open presents or do whatever tradition you do in your family or whatever tradition you did as a kid in your family, but it's no longer cool, but your mom still wants you to do it. You know, those traditions. Like, you're going to do all of those. And before all that hits... Let me give you five reminders out of the story we just read tonight. So here's reminder number one. I want you to remember that in this life, joy and sorrow are mingled together. I want you to remember that in this life, joy and sorrow are mingled together. You don't get to pick one. They always come as a package deal. Like I want you to think back on 2022, this year that we're just a couple days away from ending. I want you to think back on the great moments, the joyful moments. Maybe you graduated college, maybe you graduated high school, maybe you um, got a job or got a promotion, maybe you started dating someone for the first time, maybe that dating actually turned into engagement for you, like maybe some point this year there was something that was beautiful and amazing and stunning and good, there were joyful moments in 2022, yeah? But then for, for so many of you, there were painful moments in 2022. Somebody got sick or somebody died. 
There was a breakup. There was a heartache. There was a loss. And so when you look back on 2022, you can paint a picture that was simple, but it was actually complicated. Joy and sorrow were mingled together. Uh, like I think back to a specific day of my life. See, in February of 2020, um, my grandmother died, my, my, my dad's mom. And um, that was a tough moment for me, an even tougher moment for my dad. And so it was March 3rd of 2020 um, that they laid her to rest and had her funeral that morning. And the family was gathered there for the funeral. Uh, but I actually wasn't able to be at the funeral and grieve my grandmother that day. And the reason I wasn't able to be at the funeral um, and grieve my grandmother that day is the funeral was in the morning. And, and, and by evening, just a couple hours later, um, this little nugget um, was born into the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my son Noah on March 3rd, 2020. He was born. So you got grandmother's funeral in the morning, Noah being born in the afternoon, and then like five seconds later, the world shut down. And, 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 and so here's why I share that. I think back to March 3rd, 2020, 2020, and I don't get to be like, that was a terrible day. It was an awful day. I spent all day grieving. It was horrible. But I also don't get to look back on that day and be like, it was the best day. Everything was perfect. Nothing was wrong with the world. Everything was all good. What was that day? It was joy and sorrow mingled together. And if anyone pointed at me and said, how dare you celebrate today? Your grandmother got put to rest. I'd say, back off. I had joy in my life. But if anyone looked at me that day and said, how dare you weep today? Your son was born. I'd say, back off. I got sorrow in my life. You don't have to pick one. And for so many of us, we think that in order to be consistent, we have to pick either joy or sorrow and just ride that till the end. And I want you to remember in the course of your life, joy and sorrow are mingled together. What does that mean? It means that it challenges two types of people in this room. Let me challenge the first type of person. I want you to know that the naive optimist is wrong about the world. Like if you're the person who's just like, everything's good, nothing's ever bad, even the bad moments, they're like butterflies, they flap their wings, and like, like you just like create some story where nothing bad ever happens. And maybe you're not that extreme, but maybe you're the person who can never acknowledge that you had a bad day. And so people ask you how your day was, and you're like, it was good. But what you really mean, it was, it was a disaster. And you're never able to recognize that there is pain and sorrow in this world. And here's what I want you to know. If you are a naive optimist who thinks everything is sunshine and roses all the time, if you think following Jesus means putting a fake kind of church, you know the church smile, like, yes, everything's good, brother. You know, like that, that, if you think that's what you have to do to be a follower of Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong. But, but here's what I know. Um, in a room like this, in a generation like this, our biggest problem is not naive optimism, right? Our biggest problem is another thing. Here's what I want you to know. The, the, the cynical pessimist is wrong about the world. See, so many young people are just kind of cynical today. You've seen enough corruption. You've seen enough abuse. You've seen enough bad things. that You're just cynical about everything. And so you don't think there's any joy or any goodness. Everything's bad. Everything's wrong. And you think your spiritual gift is cynicism. But here's what I want you to know. Cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. Negativity is not fruit of the Spirit. You being down about everything and always seeing the bad side isn't you being a realist. It's you being a cynic. And you being a cynic doesn't add anything to the world. I want you to know there are joyful, good, wonderful things that happen in this world, even though there are abusive and corrupt and terrible things that happen in this world. You have to be able to hold on to both. And the person who's not able to hold on to both is a person who is useless to the world. Because here's what the book of Romans commands us to do. You know this command in the book of Romans, it says this. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It tells you to do both. 
And I need you to know that if you are to walk in obedience to this command, that I rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning, I need to be able to do both. And if you can't see the joy in life, you won't be able to rejoice with those who rejoice. If you're just this negative cynic who's like, I'm just a realist about the world, you have never added to anyone's rejoicing and you're not walking in obedience to this command. But then the same is true. If you can't see the sorrow in life, you won't be able to mourn with those who mourn. Like if you're just the kind of happy, everything's good, nothing's ever wrong, you have probably inadvertently said something painful to someone who is mourning. We need to have the capacity to do both. Why? Because in this life, joy and sorrow come as a package deal. They're mingled together. There's no way to walk after Jesus without experiencing both. Number one, joy and sorrow are mingled together. Number two, I want you to remember that Jesus' lordship makes wicked men angry. This is the story of Herod. You know, Herod called himself, called himself the king of the Jews. God didn't give him that title. Herod gave himself that title. Herod thought himself a big deal. Herod thought himself the king of the Jews. And so he hears through this prophecy that this baby is about to be born in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. His title is king of the Jews. Herod went, nope, that's not going to happen. It stirred him to anger. It stirred him to rage. And it stirred him to murder 12 to 15 two-year-old boys. Jesus' lordship, the claim that he is king, makes wicked men angry. Listen, the claim that Jesus is king will always enrage those who think they are. It will always enrage those who think they are. So this claim that God is actually in charge and you're not, that God is actually supreme and you're not, that God's word is the ultimate word and not your word, always makes powerful people angry. Have you ever wondered why it seems like, with very few exceptions, the more powerful and famous people get, the less they seem to need God? The the actual answer to that question is the more powerful and famous people get, the more they think they are God. That's what happens. And so that professor who keeps speaking down to you as a Christian, who keeps mocking and belittling you for your faith, who seems to think you are nothing because you believe in God, could it be that he is actually speaking down to you because he hates the idea that there's anyone smarter than him? Could it be that that cultural influencer or a big deal in our culture who speaks down to Christians, says they want nothing to do with God, mocks and belittles faith and people who believe in the word of God is actually doing so because they hate the idea that someone would be more famous than they are? Could it be that the tyrants in countries all across this world who jail Christians, who murder believers, who throw people who do Bible studies into jail are actually doing so because they're frightened of the idea that there might be a king above them, that there might be a king who is the king of kings and the lord of lords and who will not be messed with in any way. See, see, what I want to remind us is that this world is filled with wicked people. And we would be fools not to imagine that there are wicked people who act in their wickedness, not out of some random idea, but because they have become so strong, so powerful, so intelligent, so wise, that they hate the idea that there's anyone who is higher than them. Next time someone pushes back against your faith, next time someone who is famous or strong or powerful pushes back against the authority of the word of God or the authority of Jesus as king in this world, remember, it's because they hate the idea that there's someone who's in charge And that someone is not them. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Like in other words, everyone who claims that Jesus is king and the government of the United States of America isn't. Everyone who claims that Jesus is king and the professor in your college isn't. The celebrity on Instagram isn't. Everyone who claims that Jesus is king and no one else has the ultimate authority will always be persecuted will always be pushed back against. 
If you think you can follow Jesus and not experience any pushback, any persecution, you're not following the actual Jesus of the scripture. Wicked men like Herod have always existed and will always exist. Number three, I want to remember that wise men and women listen to God's warnings and avoid unnecessary sorrow. So this scripture is filled um, with the story uh, of these families who lost their little baby boys. That was not unnecessary sorrow. That was a sorrow they could not have prevented. There was nothing these people could have done to avoid Roman soldiers walking into their home and murdering their baby boys. Nothing they could have done. And yet, twice in this story, God warns individuals or family and tells them to do something to avoid more sorrow in their life. You see, the wise men, remember, they were told by, by God in a dream not to go back to Herod, but rather to go home by a different route. And then Mary and Joseph were warned in a dream, you need to flee to Egypt so that you do not suffer. So what do wise men and women do? We listen to God's warnings to avoid unnecessary sorrow. And in this story, both people, the Magi and Jesus' family, are warned in a dream. And I just want to stand here and say, I believe God can warn you in a dream. I just, like, I believe that still happens. I want to be honest and say that's never happened in my life. But just because something's never happened to me doesn't mean God's not going to do it to you. And it doesn't mean he won't ever do it to me. So God can warn you in a dream. And what's the best way to process a dream that where you felt like God warned you? It's to tell another believer. It's to tell someone and say, hey, I had this dream. Here's what I sensed. Here's what God was telling me. I don't know if that was me or my subconscious or what, but what do you think of this? But let me tell you the primary three ways that God is going to warn you in your life. And here's why I want you to know this. It's not just because like, I'm up here being like, I need to tell you what God says. I want you to avoid unnecessary pain in your life. And God warns us these things. He's like, over there is danger, and if you go over there, it's dangerous. That's why he warns us. So let me give you the three ways. Number one, God warns us through his word. The most clear way God warns you in your life is through his word. It's through the Bible. That's why if, like, if you don't ever read your Bible, you won't know that there are dangerous alligators waiting to eat you over there. And so let me just give you like five examples. Just like There's hundreds of examples, but let me give you five. Number one, God warns us through his word. Number one, Hebrews chapter 13, five says, keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with what you have. You know what God knows? If you end up loving money more than him, it'll destroy you. It'll wreck you. If you love your money, you're like, it's easy. I don't love my money because I'm poor. You can love your money when you're poor. You can love it when you're rich. Like, listen, don't love money. Don't be someone whose heart is attached to money. It'll wreck you. Ephesians 4, 26 says this, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. You know what this warning is? Don't be consumed with anger. Don't be consumed with anger toward your ex. Don't go to bed every night just raging at what he did or so bitter at what she did to you. Don't go to bed angry every night at your parents. I'm not saying nothing ever happened. I'm just saying if you go your whole life and don't deal with that anger, but go to bed every night just stirring on it, it will twist you. It will warp you. Jesus knows what he's saying. The next one, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, he says this, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. That'll make you stop. Like every time you were just with the boys and you were just kind of talking and just kind of popping off your mouth and you were saying those things, like God will hold you to account for that. God will hold me to account for that. And every time you were with some people and you were just saying things to get a reaction out of them and so you were saying jokes you should never say or things you should never come out of your mouth, you'll give an account for that. That doesn't mean you'll go to hell for that. That doesn't mean God will condemn you or damn you for that. It just means I'm going to give an account for my life. 
And God is tracking it. He knows. He knows the careless words that come out of my mouth. Here's another one, Matthew 7, 15. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Do you know that there are people who say that they're Christians and sound like they're Christians, but they're actually leading you astray? Do you know that most of those people seem to live on social media? Do you know that most of those people seem to be really good at creating really snappy, quick little videos that convince you and persuade you, but they're actually not true? Like, do you know that you should be aware that there are people in this life who can teach you false things about God, and those false things about God will actually lead you down the road to destruction? Jesus warns you about that. And, and the final, this is John, John chapter 5, 14. Jesus is saying this to someone. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Like, like, can I just be the one who stands up here tonight and warns you? Like, whatever that sin is that you think is like no big deal, it's not hurting anyone, who, who's perfect, I can just can't keep doing this, stop. Like, stop. It's going to do something to you. And if you are foolish enough to believe that your sin has no consequences, then you are going to get wrecked by that train. And I just want to stand here and warn you on the authority of God's word that God warns you not to sack the energy or, or, or suck the joy out of your life, but rather to help you avoid unnecessary pain. Listen, God warns us through his word. There's five examples there. I could give you a hundred you read the word, you'll see these warnings. So he warns us through his word. Number two, he warns us through his people. Through his people. You know who God's people are? It's everyone here. You're God's people, and you're God's people, and I'm God's people. We're all God's people. And so sometimes here's what happens. You hear a warning through God's people, and you don't like that. So like I get up here and give a sermon, and something kind of hits you sideways. And I want you to know if I'm ever giving a sermon or Sarah or Brian or anyone else is ever giving a sermon and something kind of hits you sideways, the worst thing for you to do is be like, well, I hate them. You know, <laughs> the worst thing you do is make it about me. Like the worst thing you can do when you feel convicted by a sermon, for convicted when you hear someone saying something publicly is to turn it around and be like, it's their fault, right? We need to be willing to listen and willing to hear. But listen, it's not just for pastors on stage. Like sometimes in small groups, someone just says something and it convicts you. Maybe someone says something just offhanded. They weren't even trying to convict you or confront you. You just kind of heard it. You heard someone talk about, I am so prayerless. I never actually pray. And you were like, oh, well, I never pray, right? And then suddenly, like, that hits you. And, like, the worst thing you could do is be like, well, whatever. That's fine. Doesn't matter, right? The best thing for you to do when another Christian opens their mouth and says something that actually, like, stings you in your heart and in your soul and in your spirit, the worst thing is to just push it aside. The best thing for you to do is say, that might have been the Holy Spirit of God speaking to me through a brother or sister. Do not dismiss it just because it didn't happen in a supernatural way. I want you to know that God loves to act supernaturally through your friends, through your parents. Oh, you don't want to hear that one, right? Through your parents and they say something to you and you're like, oh, they're my parents. What do they know? They're old. They're like in their 40s or 50s. Like God doesn't work through people in that age, right? Like no, if your parents are believers and they're speaking over you, it doesn't mean they're right, but it does mean you got to listen. It does mean you have to have the wisdom and the maturity to say something they're saying here means something and I'm willing to at least hear them out and not push them away just because they're my parents. Listen, God warns us through his word. He warns us through his people. And finally, he warns us through his spirit. Here's how the Holy Spirit of God warns me throughout my life. Um, it is typically not like the sign people are looking for. It's usually not like I'm trying to make a decision and there's an airplane in the sky that says like choose route B. You know, like that doesn't happen. Here's what typically happens. I'm in a conversation, and there's a joke I want to make because I'm hilarious. And I think to myself, I'm going to say this. And then there's a little part of my heart that's like, don't, don't do it. That's the Holy Spirit being like, Brian, you're an idiot. Stop. 
right? That there's times I, I want to do something, times I want to go places, times I want to go down a certain road or do a certain thing. And there's just like that little thing we call it a check in our spirit that just says, don't do that. And again, such foolishness happens when we take every little intuition, every little thing and go, ah, that's nothing. I'm going down this road anyway. I want you to be a person who becomes in tune with the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God is whispering over your life all the time. Pray for her. Talk to him. Don't do that. Don't call that person back. Don't actually turn on the TV right now. Put your phone down. Be aware in this moment. Don't get in that lane of traffic. Don't go down that road. The Holy Spirit of God is doing things in your life, and we would be fools not to listen. Like, I want to put it to you this way. Like, uh, when it comes to your car, um, maybe some of you have this right now. Uh, what happens from time to time in your car is on your little dashboard, a little warning light comes up. Right, and so we'll put that on the screen. Um, and I just want to do like confession time here at church. Christmas time confession, that's like double double. Um, who here has a warning light in their car that they have not taken care of? <laughs> it's a lot of you. Okay. <laughs> we need to do a series on car maintenance. Um, <laughs> but listen, listen, like, check your oil. You probably have a broken engine. Like, something, check engine is especially important, okay? So that pops up in your car. And here's what happens if you're like me, you're like, Okay, it's on, which probably gives me about six months before it's serious, right? And so, like, you just kind of ignore it, and you're like, it's fine, right? And you just kind of push it off and push it off and push it off. But here's what happens. Every time I go, it's fine. What happens is I eventually bring it in, and the mechanic looks at me and says, how long has it been on now? It's been six months. I'm like, I don't know, like a, a month or so. You know, like I lie, and that's another issue. But, but, but then they look at it, and they can tell, because here's what happens. When you don't fix the little things, the damage spreads. When you don't look at the little lights and when you don't do it, the damage spreads. When you ignore the lights, the damage spreads and then the cost of your life increases. And this is what you need to know about your car, but it's also what you need to know about your life. When you ignore warning lights, the damage spreads and the cost increases. So if there's something somewhere in your life where the Holy Spirit of God through his word, his people, or his spirit whispering to you is saying, don't do this. Listen. No. That's what Mary does. That's what Joseph does in this moment. They listen. This is what the Magi do. And they avoid unnecessary pain. And that's what I want for you. This Christmas, if there's something the Holy Spirit of God is just like whispering into your heart, do not be the foolish person who ignores it. Be the person who listens, who says, yes, Lord. Number four, remember that knowing the scripture will prepare you for unforeseen sorrow. Um... You know how the verse ends? The story doesn't end with the children being slaughtered. It actually ends with scripture. So like hundreds of years before this happened, Jeremiah said, this is going to happen. And while knowing that scripture would not have prevented that from happening, it would have prepared them for the sorrow that was coming. And, and I think one of the things we need to realize um, is how poorly we tend to prepare for sorrow that's coming. Like, let me put it this way. Most of us are prepared plenty for joyful moments in life. So like if you have a wedding coming up, if you're graduating, if you've got a big trip, if you've got a promotion at work, you're moving into a new home, like you prepare like mad for that. You get all the details, you have everything set together, you have everything ready. Like there are moments coming in 2023 that some of you already know. And you're like ready for them, you're so pumped, a great vacation, a wonderful trip, some time with family or friends, you're stoked for it. We prepare plenty for joyful moments in life, but here's my observation, most of us prepare poorly for the painful moments in life. And the reason we prepare poorly is because we somehow have deluded ourselves into thinking it's not coming. Can, can I just be the bearer of bad news tonight? In 2023, something's going to happen in your life, in our church, in our community, in our world that is awful. It's just coming. I don't know what it is. I just know there's going to be something that we look at and just go, no, 
There's going to be something that happens and it breaks our heart. It shatters our world. Something is going to happen. And we want to be prepared for that. Uh, like I'll put it this way. So uh, two weekends ago, um, I fulfilled a birthday, uh, sorry, not birthday, Christmas present uh, that my older brother got for me. So in 2019, for Christmas, my older brother got me a gift, and it was the worst gift anyone's ever gotten me. The gift he got for me is that he, he signed me up for a Spartan race. <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And so he's like, we're going to run this thing. I was like, Merry Christmas? Like, and so the, the pandemic delayed it and delayed it and delayed it. And eventually, it was a couple weekends ago, we went out to Lake Castaic, and we ran the Spartan race. All right. And so I was really prepared in my mind for like, there's obstacles, walls, you got to climb, you got to go under the wires. I was really ready for that part. I was not so much ready for like the running part of the race, right? And so I, <laughs> I'm like halfway through the race, I'm like, I'm going to die. Like, this is the end. I got through the race and like, I was sore for two weeks. I think just today I'm starting to feel better for it. It was amazing and awesome. I'll probably do it again. But it was like a whole mess. And I thought to myself like, okay, if I knew it was coming, like, I, now that I know, right, I know this is coming, uh, next time if I were to do a Spartan race, I know hard things are coming, and so I'd prepare for it. Like, I'd train for it, and I'd do a little more running than I, I usually I, I do ever, right? Like, that's what i do, I'd, like, prepare for the Spartan race. But then I was thinking to myself, I was like, hard things are coming, I should prepare for that. And I was thinking, that's what's true of our lives, right? Like, do you know that hard things are coming in this next year? And you need to prepare for that. You need to be ready for that. You need to actually situate your life so that you are ready for the hardest things that are going to come at you. Because there are going to be deaths. There are going to be divorces. There are going to be breakups. There are going to be layoffs at your job. There are going to be moments where your dreams are shattered. Hard things are coming. And you can prepare yourself. And how do you prepare yourself? You prepare yourself by knowing the word of God. Listen, as we get to January 1st, can I just be the one who's just constantly banging the gong of pick a Bible reading plan, lean into the scriptures. If you don't read the Bible at all right now, let this be the year, 2023, where you start reading the Bible for the first time, where you lean in like never before. Let this be the year you know the word of God. And then um, I just want to suggest to you maybe a different way of you understanding um, and coming to grips with the scriptures and maybe preparing yourself for the hard things that are going to come. Um, and that is through something that's called, um, we call them kind of inhaling or exhaling prayers. Or, or inhaling or exhaling or meditative breath prayers. We call them a bunch of different things. And, and here's basically what this is. This is the Christian version of meditation. So the scriptures call us to meditate. But meditation is not the same thing as you typically think of meditation. Because typically when you do meditation, what you think of is the job is to sit in silence and empty my mind. And here's what I want you to know. That is a style of meditation. It is not the Christian style of meditation. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. It is filling your mind. It is filling your mind with the truth of Scripture. Filling your mind with the promises of God. Filling your mind with what God has to say so it overwhelms all the nonsense that your world has to say. That's meditation. So how do we do these? These breathing, inhaling and exhaling Scripture. These breathing prayers. How do we do this? Here's what we do. We take a Scripture, a phrase, an idea, and you break it into two. And then you breathe in the first half of it, and you breathe out the second half. You want to prepare yourself for hard things? Write these five things down. Take a picture as I go. I'm going to give you five examples. Number one, the most famous is, of this breath prayer is this. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Here's how it works. You breathe in. Jesus Christ, Son of God. As you breathe out, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You might set a two-minute timer and just do that for two minutes. I know people who have set a five-minute, ten-minute. I know people who do this for one hour each week. They just breathe in, Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
have mercy on me. Let me give you another one. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the moment where you're stressed, in the moment where you're scared, in the moment where you're overwhelmed, and you don't know what's going to happen next, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let me give you Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and know that he is God. The nations are raging and there's war and there's famine and there's plague and there's economic meltdown and a recession on the horizon. Be still and know that he is God. The next one, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The final one, Romans chapter 8. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. What is Christian meditation? Christian meditation is not emptying your mind. It is filling your mind with these things. You fill your heart. You fill your mind with this. You want no one way to slow down, to get out of the busy, to take a breath? Do these. But like literally earlier today, I was walking with a young man uh, who was back from college, and we walked out of the church building across the street. We were walking in a little area over there, and he was telling me, like, I never slow down. I need to slow down. I need to take a breath more. I need to spend more time in prayer. I need to spend more time of this. And we're, like, walking along this path, and there's a bench. I was like, right here, right now. We sat down together, and we turned off everything, and we set a five-minute timer, and we just sat in silence for five minutes. And you know what I did for five minutes? Jesus Christ, Son of God. Have mercy on me. That was all I needed today. All I needed to prep for whatever comes next is for me to inhale and exhale scripture. And I want to encourage you to prepare your heart for the wicked, horrible, awful things that will happen in your life and will happen next year by breathing scripture in and out. When you prepare your heart with scripture, it doesn't mean bad things won't happen. It means that you will be ready for those bad things when they are thrown at you. Here's number five, final one. Um, and our band can make their way up because I just want to remind you one final thing. I want you to remember that sorrow has an expiration date, but joy lasts forever. <laughs> like the great promise of the Bible is that sorrow has an expiration date. Like those moms who are weeping over their kid, there will come a day where they won't weep anymore. Like you and the things you are weeping over, the things that happened this last year, the thing from childhood that you just can't seem to shake, it has an expiration date. It ends one day. The great prophecy of Scripture in Revelation 21.4 says he, being God, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Your pain will be finished on that day. There will come a day where Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, and your tears will be no more. You will have cried your last tear. And then Isaiah 55 in the Old Testament says it this way. It says, those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion, which is the idea of entering God's holy city with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You know what the painful parts of the Christmas story remind us? They remind us that if it's not good, God's not done. He's not done. And so whatever pain you're going through right now, I don't want to deny it. I don't want to minimize it. It's real. Pain and sorrow and joy, they're mingled together in this world. But I want you to know there comes a day where the expiration date hits and God says no more on your pain. But the joy you experience, the delight you have in the Lord, the moment where you're worshiping him and your spirit just feels caught up in him and all is right with the world, that lasts forever. That's your future. Your future is not pain. Your future is not dealing with what happened to you. Your future is not weeping and mourning and aching. Your future is joy. And I fully believe that in glory, we're going to meet these 12 to 15 moms who lost their babies that night. 
whatever pain they felt, their joy when they know that salvation forevermore with God in heaven, that's what's coming their way. So this Christmas, I'm just going to assume there's some of you who are walking through a horrific year you've gone through. And yet I want to remind you that pain has an expiration date, but the joy you know in God lasts forever. And until then, that sorrow and that joy stay mingled together. And you can choose to lean in to a father who loves you, who sees you, who knows you, and says, you are mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight, and thank you for your word, and thank you for reminding us once more of the truths of your scripture. Thanks for Christmas. Thanks for the good parts, the hard parts. Thanks for the moments of joy and for the moments of sorrow. Because God, I know you're working all things for the good of those who love you. So God, I pray over this room, I pray over those watching online right now, and I ask that anyone who is walking through sorrow and pain and heartache, that this year has been brutal and devastating and they're ready for it to be done, that they would know your joy, that they would rejoice tonight in this room, that they would know your spirit and know your salvation and walk in the confidence of knowing you. So Father, would you bless them and keep them. This Christmas, may your face shine upon them and may they know your peace. And right now as we stand to sing, God, with the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you. Would they fill us with joy this Christmas? We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said real loud.